It was Christmas Day, 1863. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, America's first self-supporting poet, sat down at his desk in his study in his home near Cambridge, Massachusetts. The times were bleak. The nation was torn apart by the Civil War. The normally festive occasion was no match for the dark cloud of gloom that hovered over Dr. Longfellow, refusing to go away. A couple of years prior to this time, uh, Henry Longfellow's world changed in a tragic accident when his wife's dress caught on fire. She'd been working with children and either something from a candle or hot ember or, or something uh, called her dress and it was highly combustible. Um, Dr. Longfellow heard his wife's screams and rushed out from his study and saw that uh, she was ablaze and did everything he could to extinguish the fire. So he rolled up a rug and tried to put the fire out that way and then he rolled over herself uh, trying to, with all that he had to extinguish those flames, but wasn't enough. Uh, the next morning, Mrs. Longfellow died from the severe burns that she incurred in that fire. And Henry himself had scars uh, on his face in particular. And so he grew a beard to hide those scars. He was also afraid that he might be confined to an insane asylum because his grief was so heavy and his scars were so repulsive. But there is more to the story. Dr. Longfellow's oldest son, Charlie, volunteered for the Union Army at age 19. He did not have his father's blessing to go to war, but he was a capable young man rising quickly from private to second lieutenant in an amazingly short period of time. But Charlie was injured in a, in a skirmish uh, with the Confederates, and there was a bullet that entered into his back and lodged near his spine. And so, of course, there was fear that he would be paralyzed. So uh, a message came that Charlie had been injured and was being transferred to Washington, D.C., where he would have better medical care. And so Dr. Longfellow boarded a train and got to Washington before his son did and uh, waited upon him uh, for the, the surgery and for the prognosis. and. Uh, there was an indication from the doctors that uh, Charlie may indeed be paralyzed, but he might recover. They needed time, maybe six months. So that was the situation for Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on Christmas Day, 1863. A 57-year-old widower with six children, the oldest of whom may be paralyzed as a result of a war when the country was fighting against itself. It's really not too different from the situation today, is it? There's tragedy, 
seems like everywhere country seems to be torn apart even though we're not in a war with each other nonetheless we feel the, the tension of division and of pain and of sorrow and also just the impatience of dealing with these masks and the restrictions that come with them. Nevertheless, in 1863, on Christmas Day, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat down and thought about all that was going on, losing his wife, the fear of losing his son, the war that was raging, and he wrote something down on paper. It began like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and their old familiar carols play, wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered from the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know, Christians aren't supposed to have problems, are we? At least, at least that's what some believe and even teach you know, there are best-selling books that tell you that if you just learn the secret of the abundant Christian life, you will never struggle with anything, not sickness, not financial problems, not even temptation, and certainly not tragedy. Life for you as a Christian will be effortless if you have problems even after following the prescribed course as outlined by their famous authors, well then, you must be doing something wrong. You must not be abiding in Christ. You must not have enough faith. You know, I would like to say uh, that you will find these books in the fiction section of your favorite online or virtual bookstore you know, where they belong, but alas, these books are marketed in the Christian living section of the websites of your favorite Christian booksellers. Well, today we're going to look at a story in the Bible about a devout family who worshiped God faithfully, and yet there was tension, deep tension in the family. And the story I'm talking about is found for us in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and a portion of chapter 2. You'll find it on page, is it 225? In uh, your pew Bible if you'd like to follow with me. So I want to read the first 20 verses of chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10 in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim on the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph the Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. 
and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah gave a or when Elkanah sacrificed, he gave portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And now, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Well, what is this passage about? Well, there, there are several things. The uh, e events in the first few chapters of the book of 1 Samuel uh, take place in the days of the book of the Judges. So uh, we've been familiar with Judges, and now we're, uh, you know, even though we're, we're not taking the text from the, the book of Judges, we are still in the days of the Judges, and Samuel is in fact the last judge. 
And we remember also that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, later on, Saul would be chosen as, kings, uh, as Israel's first king, uh, followed by David, who would become the prototype of the Messiah. And so 1 Samuel points us to the coming king, uh, to the earthly king of Saul and then uh, to, to David. So you, you could say that in a sense the book of 1 Samuel is a, a book about Advent. It's a time of waiting for the coming of the king and uh, eventually for the coming of the ultimate king. So Advent is a season of waiting. And uh, by the way, uh, Advent is also a season of stress and tension, and just in case you haven't noticed. And then we have COVID on top of that. So we are waiting. We're waiting for this season to go away. I mean, not the Christmas season, but the, the season of the pandemic. We're, we're waiting for that to go away. So you could say we're, we're, we're waiting, waiting for God to come and do something. So with all of this in mind, uh, I want to tell you how I want to approach the text. Uh, primarily, I want us to focus on the coming of the king. But I also want us to see how God uses the stress the tension, the inconveniences, and the hardships that we face in life. So since we're talking about hardships, what was so hard about Hannah's life? Well, a lot of things. To begin with, she had to share her husband with another woman. Elkanah had two wives. Why? Well, the text doesn't explicitly say, but uh, if we familiarize ourselves with the culture, we'll have a little better understanding of why Elkanah had two wives. From uh, our cultural standpoint, you know, it's hard to imagine how a man who is such a devout worshiper of the Lord could be so unfaithful to his wife as to take another wife and bring her in to his house and have children by her. Uh, but this is not happening in our culture. It was happening in, in their culture. And so um, we, we need to see uh, that, that context. Um, and I want to take time to do this because I, I, I don't want us to trip over the, the fact that Alcana uh, had two wives and uh, we might uh, get confused a little bit and say, uh, well, does the Bible actually teach polygamy? And uh, then we chase that rabbit trail. Uh, so I just want to go ahead and shoot this rabbit uh, while it's running down the trail so that we, we don't trip over it, uh, metaphorically speaking, of course. So and in, in the days uh, in which this was taking place, um, having children, uh, especially sons, was not only culturally acceptable, it was also encouraged by the culture. That's because everyone benefited when the birth rate was high, and, and, and here's why. You know, every family had to have a son to inherit the, the family uh, wealth. That uh, could be the family farm or the family business, whatever the family had. Uh, only a son could in, inherit that. And so uh, you would want to have uh, a lot of children, uh, particularly so that someone could uh, in, inherit uh, the, the land so that uh, the family wouldn't lose that. 
Uh, also, that's a good reason uh, to uh, have, have children, particularly a son. But the more children you had, the more hands you had to work the fields if you were a farmer, or the more hands you had to help in the family business, you know, if you were a, a, a businessman. So basically, the more children you had, the more money you had. Today, that's not the way it works. Uh, the more children you have, the less money you have. Um, but, but anyway, the more children you had, you know, the bigger your business would be. So that makes sense. And I, 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 here's another reason. You're always, uh, it, there's always the potential that, that some bigger, larger nation could come along. And if, if you are uh, weak in the, in the sense that you don't have a, a, a very large army, uh, then you could be taken captive, you could be uh, enslaved, or uh, worse things happen to you. But if uh, your nation was fruitful and you had uh, you know, lots of children, lots of sons, uh, then you could have a, a, a big army and other nations would leave you alone. And if they did attack, uh, you would be able to protect uh, your, your families at, at home. So you know, all of these are, are great reasons uh, to have children. And if you had a wife who could not bear children, well, you didn't want to lose uh, your family business or your family farm or the family wealth. So they go get another wife who, who could raise or who could bear children. And uh, this is likely what happened here. So um, on the question of polygamy, we see it's practiced in the Bible. You know, Abraham, you know, had Hagar, and uh, there, there are several other, you know, godly men in the Bible who took uh, an, another wife. And so we might think, well, I guess the Bible approves of this. Uh, there's a lot of things in the Bible that happen that the Bible does not say this is what you ought to do, and polygamy is one of them. In fact, in every single polygamous marriage mentioned in the Bible, the tension and the problems that follow that arrangement are always spelled right out there for everyone to see. Everyone in a polygamous marriage in the Bible was absolutely miserable. So with that out of the way, let's move on. Speaking of miserable, Hannah was more miserable than anyone in that household. You know, not only did she have to share her husband with another woman, she had to endure this other woman's torment. Now, verse 6 tells us that Peninnah used to provoke Hannah grievously to torment her. I mean, that, that's right there in the Bible. You know, one commentator imagines what one of Peninnah's typical verbal uh, assaults at the dinner table might have looked like. So... Here we go. Now, do all your children have your food? Oh, my, there are so many of you. It's just hard to keep track. Hannah, could you give me a hand? Uh, Mama, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah, oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Well, doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. 
Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have any kids? Oh, certainly he does, but Miss Hannah just keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not, Mama? Why? Well, because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? Do you think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? Well, I'm not sure that the tormenting sounded anything like that. Uh, perhaps her torments were limited to the cultural equivalent of na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. Tension ruled in that household, and Hannah was absolutely miserable. You know, our culture puts enormous pressure on women to conform to the cultural ideal, too. It's not just that culture in days of antiquity. I mean, I mean think about it. If, if, if you are a woman, what does the culture expect of you? They expect you to look like a model, have plenty of money, and credentials, and accomplishments. And every culture has its paninas who let you know that you are not measuring up to the cultural ideal. And so you will hear things like, you're ugly, you're unsophisticated, you're untalented, you're unaccomplished, you're stupid, you're unfashionable, you're just uncool. Now, every culture has its ways of chastising anyone who doesn't conform to the cultural norm. Those who do not fit in are stigmatized, and everybody goes after them and makes fun of them. And that's how the culture keeps you in line so that you will conform and so that you will fit. You have to be firmly rooted in cultural standards. Hannah didn't fit. And through the voice of Penina, her culture was telling her exactly that. You don't fit. You're not measuring up to the standards that are set before you. So at the core, Hannah's problems seem to be firmly rooted in cultural standards. But actually, Hannah's problems at the core are not cultural in nature. They are theological. Look at verses 5 and 6 in the first chapter, just a moment. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Do you get that? I mean, the, the writer says it twice so that we get it. The Lord had closed her womb. You know, all of Hannah's troubles can be traced not to the culture, but to the sovereignty of God. Hannah emphasizes it in her prayer in uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, just a few phrases from those verses. 
the Lord kills, he brings down to Sheol. The Lord makes poor, he brings low. Yeah, that's pretty serious. You know, it, it wasn't just an accident of nature that Hannah was not able to conceive children. If modern medicine had been available then, the doctors may have found a reason. But behind the medical reason was the clear action of God. The Lord had closed her womb. Let's be honest for a minute. Well, I hope we can do it for more than a minute, but... Uh, in particular, a lot of us just don't like to let God have this much sovereignty, do we? We don't like to think that God gives us problems. So we say God allowed the problem, but he did not cause it. Yeah, I understand the reluctance to acknowledge that God would intentionally bring problems into our lives. But the Bible says otherwise. You know, there's Paul's thorn in the flesh, and uh, you know, Paul prays that the Lord will take it away from him, and ultimately the Lord tells Paul, this gift is from me. This thorn is from me. We read in the Bible, every son whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We, we read about Job, upon the loss of his ten children, his wealth, and his health. And what does Job have to say about this? Even if God allows a natural disaster to kill all our children, we must not only accept good from God, but also adversity. That's what he says. You know, otherwise, we will not properly submit to him as the sovereign Lord, and we will not view him as an adequately powerful God to deal with our situation. And thus, we will not trust him as we should. We must recognize that our problems, many of our problems, come from God's gracious, loving hand. And let me pause for a moment. I plan to say this at the end of my remarks, but I want to put this thought in your mind now. I mean, we're all dealing with COVID. That would be enough. But beyond that, a lot of us here have some problems that we wish would go away. It could be physical pain. It could be emotional stress. It could be tension between relationships. It could be problems at work. It could be anything. So intense that you would love for the Lord to take that thing away. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Consider this problem that you have as a gift from God. Don't run away from me yet. It's wrapped, the gift is wrapped in troubles, and problems, and pain, and tension, and stress. But if you pursue God and go deep enough to get down below that surface, you're going to discover what Hannah discovered. And we'll get to that in a bit, but I want to put that thought in your mind first. Meanwhile, while we deal with our problems, we have questions. Now, 
How could a loving and good God allow a small child to die or a young mother to get cancer? How could he permit a godly missionary to be brutally murdered? How can he permit tragedies such as wars and earthquakes and famines and floods where thousands of people are killed? You know, we, we cannot conceive of the idea of God even allowing such things to happen. But if God can't keep things like this from happening, then either he is not all-powerful and he's certainly not sovereign. But if God is not sovereign over such tragedies, then you are left with even bigger problems. Here's one. Either Satan is of equal power with God. It's something called dualism. You have a, you know, a, a good a supernatural being and an evil supernatural being, and they're both equal in power, and you know, they're always at each other neutralizing the other is that the way it works if so then there's no guarantee that god would ever defeat satan that's one problem another problem you would have is that you have this nice god who wishes that he could control such things as terrible suffering but he can't because he gave us free will so if that's the case then god is not sovereign Free will is sovereign. But as worshipers of the Lord God Almighty, we want to find out who God really is. And that's what drove Hannah to go to him in prayer. She believed and trusted in the sovereignty of God. She believed in God's reign over the entire universe, including her own life, even though God had closed her womb. Do, do you understand what's happening with, with Hannah? You know, God has closed her womb. She's not, she's not able to take her place alongside all the other um, uh, women who can have children and uh, be regarded as a hero in, in her culture. Yet she trusts in the sovereignty of God. So let me ask you this question. Why did God close Hannah's womb? Did he have something against her? Had she done something that, does, that would make her deserve her barrenness? I mean, was God out to get her? You know, surely some of these questions must have crossed Hannah's mind. And perhaps... This was her deepest pain because if you think that God has rejected you, what hope is there, right? But clearly, Hannah's troubles were ultimately from God. But as we are about to see, far from being a source of despair, it is the truth that is our best hope. So... Um, the truth of the matter is that even though we go through hardships, pain, tension, sorrow, and stress, and have questions about God, our best hope is that the God of the Bible really is the God who exists.
that he is the God. Now clearly, Hannah's troubles were ultimately from God. We acknowledge that, but as we are about to see, far from this being a source of despair, uh, it is this truth that gives Hannah hope. Okay, so how so? We get a clue from the text in uh, verse uh, 9. Uh, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Where's the clue? (laughs) Uh, Well, you probably can't see the italic, uh, but the the word rose, uh, Hannah rose, uh, means after they finished eating, Hannah stood up. Why is this even in the text? Uh, well, the, the, the word here that's translated rose is, is actually a Hebrew idiom. We, we understand idioms, not their figures of speech. Uh, you don't take them really uh, literally. Like, for instance, if you give someone the cold shoulder, if you take that literally, what does that mean? You have an ice pack on your shoulder and then you lean up against that person? Uh, is that the cold shoulder? Or uh, sometimes uh, we might say, well, uh, I, I heard it through the grapevine. Does that mean that you have to go down to the grapevine? You couldn't just take out your phone and talk to somebody that way. But you, you, we understand what that manner of, of, of speaking is. Uh, th- these are idioms. Uh, another one would be, uh, she put her foot down. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, here that uh, you know Hannah stood up and uh, was... Uh, you know, putting one foot out in front of the other so she could walk. She is taking action. When it says that Hannah rose, it, you know, it's like she stood up. Uh, she uh, stood up to uh, all that was going on in her life, all of the torments, all of the teasing, all of the uh, rejection that she was receiving from Panina and from culture. And then she does something about it. And what we might think is that she might go after Panetta with her bare hands and try to just choke the life out of that woman. But that's not what she did. What she does is she goes to the Lord. She goes to, to Shiloh where they are and, and she goes in. The, the, the text says the temple, um, even though we know this uh, Solomon's temple hadn't been built yet, but it's a place of, of worship where she goes and she prays and she weeps, her soul is in agony. And she makes a strong appeal to the Lord for a son. She even vows to make her son a Nazarite from conception. Who else uh, was a Nazarite from conception during the time of the judges? Uh, We remember Samson. Samson and Samuel were contemporaries, had a lot in common. But here on the surface, it uh, appears that Hannah is trying to make a bargain with God. You ever make a bargain with God? Lord, if you will do this, I will do this. Good deal for you, right? Uh, That's not what Hannah is doing. Uh, How do we know that that's not what she's doing? Well, a a, a Nazarite was a voluntary Levite. Levites were assistants uh, in, in the place of worship, they, they would assist the priest uh, with, with worship. Uh, so they were like associate ministers, I guess. Many of them were uh, musicians. But there were some restrictions on Levites. They could not own real property. Uh, that means, uh, you know, real estate. They, they couldn't own land. They couldn't inherit anything. 
So, if God gives Hannah a son, then what's the benefit to Hannah as far as having a son who could inherit uh, the, the family wealth? As a Levite from birth, uh, Hannah would have to nurse that little boy until he was weaned, maybe two or three years old in that culture, and then take him to Eli there in, in Shiloh. And Eli was a lousy father. Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons, were, were evil. And if you want to read more about them, uh, you, you can. So not a very good environment to leave your son to, to grow up. And uh, she wouldn't see him like maybe once a year uh, when she went down uh, to, to worship. And, you know, there's some other things uh, that you know, parents of young children thoroughly enjoy. You know, when you know, kids are, are young and you walk in the door, they're so excited to see you and they run as fast as they can with their arms outstretched until they get to you and they throw their arms around your neck and hug you and maybe give you a sloppy kiss. And um, Hannah would never know what that was like. So we might ask the question, you know, why is she asking for a son? And her bargaining chip, if you wanna call it that, uh, is that she will dedicate her son to the Lord as a, a, a Nazarite and she wouldn't get any benefit from it. Well, we get a clue from the text uh, of why she was not trying to bend God's will to conform to hers. You know, she was bending her will to conform to God's will. And here's a clue, verse 10. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You get that? Okay, here's the order. Hannah prays for a son. She's no longer sad after she prays. She's at peace. Then she gets pregnant and she has a son. That is not the order of events that we might expect. It's more likely that we would expect the order of events to go something like this. Hannah prays for a son. God grants her request. She gets pregnant. Then Hannah is at peace. Let's put it in terms we can understand. Suppose you're applying for a job or uh, maybe a scholarship or maybe submitting an application for grad school. And so you send in you know, your letter of uh, interest along with your resume and they call you for an interview and you go and uh, you're, you're not at peace prior to the interview. You're probably not at peace during the interview. And after the interview is over, are you at peace? No, you're not at peace. You're on pins and needles. You're not at peace until you hear from that person who has the power to determine the course of your life, you know, whether you are accepted or not. But that's not what happened with Hannah. She prays, then she's at peace. And then she hears from God. So what is Hannah saying in her prayer? Lord, my life is in your hands and I'm at peace with that. Whatever you want to do. I've made my request, but the decision is yours. And what does God do? Okay. <laughs> I'll give you a son. 
And so he did. Now, I want to ask this question. What did the Lord do for Hannah because she entrusted herself to his sovereignty? How was her life better because uh, she had been barren for so long and had to en endure uh, Panetta's torment day after day? You know, how was her life better now? Um, would it not have been better for her to have had children you know, soon after she and Elkanah got married and uh, Panetta would never have been part of the picture? Uh, wouldn't it have been better uh, if Hannah and Elkanah had reflected the cultural ideal and Hannah would have never needed to go to God to intervene in her life in the first place. Don't we often think about you know, how my life could have been different if I had taken this road instead of that road, if I had gone to this school instead of that school, if I had taken you know, this job instead of that job, or you know, your mind can wander and you think about what life might have been. Do you think Hannah ever wondered about what life could have been like? You know, house full of kids and no second wife there to annoy you and drive the living daylights out of you. But that's what God chose for her. And so we come to the point of what was her life going to be like having waited, having endured all the hardship, and having pleaded to the Lord to give her peace, um, but in the context there of, of asking for a child. Here, here's what happened. She experienced a miraculous birth of sorts. She got what she asked for, a, a son, but she got a lot more than what she asked for. Chapter 2 Verse 21, we see that God also gave her three sons and two daughters. So Hannah had a total of six kids. But her first child, the son that she pleaded to the Lord to give her, this baby boy who was miraculously born, became the prototype of the coming king. Now most scholars believe that Hannah was able to see with eyes of faith uh, into the royal line of David. That hundreds of years later, the ultimate king would come through the line of David. And when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced that she was going to have a son whose birth would be truly miraculous, soon after Mary received this wonderful news, she went to visit her close relative Elizabeth who was about to experience a miraculous birth of her, of, of her own. And then it's in that context that Mary, Mary bursts out into song, saying or singing something we know as the Magnificat. And it sounds remarkably similar to the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. That's because Mary would have been very familiar with Hannah's song. It was sung annually, uh, during the time of Rosh Hashanah, the, the, the Jewish New Year, uh, the, the, the song of, of Hannah was, was reviewed. 
Now we don't have time to look at that song, um, but there are a, a couple of things in particular uh, that are of, of great significance. And uh, verse one, Hannah rejoices in the Lord's salvation. In the verses that follow, Hannah recognizes that this salvation is by grace, that God extends his grace not to the proud, not to the strong, not to the well-fed, not to the prosperous, but to the humble, the weak, the hungry, and the poor. That God extends grace to those who know that they do not have what it takes to save themselves. The Messiah did not come to say, okay, here's the example of how you ought to live. There's a standard, now live up to it, and you're in. And there'll be people trying to live up to that standard, the, the strong and the powerful and the prosperous would think that they would have the resources to meet that standard. But those who don't have any of those things know that they need someone to come and deliver them from all their troubles and pain and sorrows. Then there's one, and, and Hannah was able to see that the salvation is by grace. Then there's one other thing in chapter 2, verse 10. Um, that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I want you to pay a special, or special attention to this word uh, anointed. See, at, at, at this time, Israel did not have a king and did not seem to want one. So when Hannah spoke of uh, his king, she looked ahead to the Messiah who finally will set all things that are wrong right. And he is identified here as his anointed. And this is the first place in the Bible where the coming king is, re is referred to as the anointed. If you translate the word anointed from the Hebrew, it means Messiah. If you translate it into Greek, it means Christ. Do you see what God is revealing to Hannah when she opens this package that's wrapped in sorrow and pain and distress? She finds Christ centuries before he comes and long before anybody knew that he would be known as God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. When Henry Wadsworth Longfellow heard the bells in 1863, he reflected on the circumstances of his broken world and all of his troubles. And yet in the midst of that, he recognized a deeper reality that God had not forgotten his people and all their troubles. And yet, in the midst of that, he recognized a deeper reality. God has not forgotten his people. God has acted to save, to deliver. There is hope that is deeper than the brokenness of this world. And so having realized that, Henry Longfellow sat down and wrote that poem, but there's one last stanza that I didn't read earlier that I want to read now. Then peal the bells more loud and deep, 
God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fall, the right prevail, with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Today, all our troubles mock our hope, but the day will soon come, the day that we are waiting for, when God will end all our troubles. The wrong will fall, the right will prevail, and there will be peace on earth. Goodwill to man. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you with a mixture of things in our mind. The things in our minds that we brought with us when we came, uh, the stuff that we uh, deal with, uh, perhaps extra pressures at this time of year. Uh, you know our hearts, you know our souls, uh, you know what we struggle with. But now we have something else to think about as we consider this passage uh, from First and Second Samuel about uh, the miraculous birth of Samuel and the persistent faithfulness of, of Hannah who trusted in your sovereignty and, and uh, how you revealed wonderful, marvelous uh, things to her, giving her the, the greatest gift that anyone could have uh, to reveal yourself to her as, as you are. Uh, you are the coming king. You are the Messiah, the Christ. You are the anointed one. And you have come for us. You have revealed yourself unto us. And I pray, Lord, that anyone who may be here or uh, perhaps listening to the recorded message uh, who does not know you as Savior, as Messiah, will be able to see the light that brings us all the way home. We trust in your sovereignty, using us as your instruments to bring light to this darkened world and hope, bright hope, to those who are in despair. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen.